0: Well, friends, as we take up again our study of the book of John this morning and you turn to your Bibles, John 1, let me begin by asking you a very important question this morning. What does God look like? What does God look like? It's a question not only thrown around in churches, but interestingly enough, it's a question our culture itself cannot seem to get away from. You can see this by just taking some stock of popular songs over the last 50 years. For example, Johnny Cash is pressing the country question, would you recognize Jesus? Would you recognize Jesus if you saw him face to face? Or would you wonder if he's just another one you could not place? You may not find him coming in a chariot of the Lord. Jesus could be riding in a 49 Ford. Or what of ZZ Top's rock and roll road trip In Jesus just left Chicago? He took a jump through Mississippi, muddy water turned to wine, then out to California through the forest and the pines, ah, take me with you, Jesus. In the 80s we had Depeche modes, trying to become your own personal Jesus. And more recently we heard in 2009 from the fray in the song You Found Me, where they sang to us that I found God on the corner of First and Amistad where the West was all but one, alone, smoking his last cigarette. I said, where have you been? And he said, ask anything. But no one has perhaps captured the question better than John Osborne's 90s hit, One of Us. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory, what would you ask if you had just one name? Question. She goes on to cry in the chorus, What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. So what if God were one of us? What if he had a face and a name? What would it look like? What would it be? Could you put a face to that name? So we come back to John 1, and really the final few statements of this introduction, we come to one of the simplest and yet complex verses in all of the Bible. Really, every verse from now, verse 14 of John 1, all the way to verse 18 is this way. It's a simple sentence, but complex in what is being said. It's one of the reasons that we've broken up every sermon from here on out to the end of the year. is just a study of one singular verse 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. or at Christmas Day. Because these verses, though they are very short if we measure them by their words, are very, very long if we measure them by the truths that they hold out. And they all center on this question. The question that our culture can't seem to get away from and that we as Christians ought not never grow old of trying to explore. What does God look like? Because it is all that this man John, the beloved disciple, is aiming to hand to his readers through this gospel history of Jesus Christ. John's aim has been, we'll certainly see, now is going to be to give us a glorious vision of Jesus Christ. John's aim is now to help us see Jesus so that we may believe. And friends, as we will come to see, to put it shortly, we have come to know God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And So in God's providence we enter into this truth in our Bibles this morning on the first Sunday, technically, of Advent, where we celebrate Jesus' first arrival, which is the central truth of all Christianity, that God came and dwelt among men, that God Himself was made a man. So hopefully you've made it to John chapter 1 by now. If you don't have a Bible of your own, friends, please use the one that's there in the pew in front of you. You can find John chapter 1 on page 833 in that Bible. But as you turn there, Let me invite you to stand once more. And as I've done each sermon, I'm going to read the entire introduction to us, verses 1 through 18, so we get the full breadth of what John is saying in this introduction. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word once more. Hear now the Word of the Lord to us today from John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. As I said today, we're simply going to focus right there near the middle in verse 14. A verse that has stuck with many of us in our own Christian walk, in our own Christian life. This is it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory... Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As I said, a short, simple sentence, but full of meaning, of truth, and of grace. If you look at this short verse, you'll see it breaks up nicely into three shorter phrases that are worth taking up and considering. Each one tells us something about what Jesus does when he steps into human history. So if you'd like to write these down, here are the three acts that I want us to consider from Jesus this morning. Number one, his act of becoming flesh. Becoming flesh. Number two, his act of displaying glory. Displaying glory. And number three, his act of revealing the Father. So those three things held out in this one single verse. Becoming flesh, displaying glory, and revealing the Father. Now, as we consider each of these, my prayer for us especially as we begin the Advent season, is that we would grow to see Christ in all of His beauty, and all of His glory, and worship Him because of who He is. So let's prayerfully and reverently then enter into this text by first considering how Jesus acts in becoming flesh. What is He doing? Look back at the text in John 1. As we come to verse 14, we find there the first time since the very first verse of the book in John's gospel that he uses this title that he gives this person the word. See how the gospel starts. In the beginning was the word and the word was God or the word was with God and the word was God. Now, last month we took up that verse. We took an entire sermon and just looked at the three parts of that verse and rolled it around in our heads as we tried to understand what is John saying about this word, this logos of God. And number one, we saw that the word was eternal, that He always was and that He always will be. And number two, we saw that the word was God, that He's divine in His nature that He's divine in His person. And at the same time, we saw that the Word was with God, that He is a part of what we know as the Godhead, the Trinity itself, that this Word is none other than the Son of God, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But then John went silent about the Word, or should we say he chose to use several other titles to describe this second person of the Trinity. In verses 2 and 3, it was simply Him who created all things. In verse 4, it was in Him was life, that He is the life giver. And then in verses 5 through 9, we saw that He was the light, not just any light, but the true light. And then finally in verses 10 and 11, He was the unknown and unreceived one. He was the one who came and yet was rejected. But then last week in verses 12 and 13, we came to the very peak of this introduction the very climax of the whole thing the very purpose john gives not just for writing these first 18 verses but for writing the entire book where there we saw that anyone who believes who receives jesus christ and believes that he is the king of kings and lord of lords the savior and the one who gave his life to ransom sinners, that all who put their faith and hope and trust in him are born again to everlasting life. And this is John's purpose, as you'll call, that you might believe this. But believe what? Believe who? Exactly. So here we are. Who is this Word? Who is this light? Who is the one that ought to be known and believed above everyone else in our lives? Simply put, John 1.14 tells us He is the Word made flesh. And friends, I don't want you to miss the beauty of that simple phrase. John puts it so simply, but so magnificently that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does he mean? Well, Simply put, what John is telling us here is that our divine Savior really took on human nature in order to save sinners. He really became a man like us in all things except for our sinful nature and our sinful lives. Like us, he was born of a woman Though born under the power of the Holy Spirit and not of the will of man, a lot like how we are born again. But like us, he grew from infancy to boyhood, and from boyhood to becoming a man, growing in both wisdom and in stature, as Luke 2 tells us. And like us, he grew hungry and thirsty, and so he ate and he drank, he grew tired. And so he slept. And like us, he grew weary. He felt pain. He wept. He rejoiced. He marveled and was moved to righteous anger and godly compassion. Having flesh and taken a body, we find that this word made flesh prayed. That he read and studied the Scriptures. He suffered the anguish of being tempted, yet never giving in, fully submitting His human will to the will of God the Father. And it was this body, this Word made flesh, that He finally gave over to truly suffering and shedding His blood. He really died was really buried and really rose again and has truly and really ascended up into the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. And what's so glorious is in that all of this time and all of these acts, He was God as well as a man. This is what John meant when he says that Jesus The Word became flesh. This is what John means when he says that he dwelt among us. That he was truly here. That he was truly a man and truly lived and moved and had his being as such. And this is what we call the very two natures of Jesus Christ. That he was fully God and that he was fully man. And as these two natures dwell within this one person, we come to what is no doubt one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian religion. And so it must be carefully stated. There is a bit of precision and snipering that must take place and how we perceive and understand and even speak of Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. It is as J.C. Ryle once wrote. It is just one of those great truths which are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. It's like opening an old trunk or an antique jewelry box. We are to do so with such great carefulness and honor because we know that within is something special, something unique, something precious. So we cannot pretend that we are able to fully explain the bringing together of the two natures of our Lord Jesus Christ into one person. At the same time, and you all know this, this doesn't mean we get to give up. This doesn't mean, men, women, and children, that we get to sit back and say, oh, that is beyond our understanding, therefore we should not even try. No, none of that petty let God be mysterious out there and we'll just kind of operate with our own knowledge here. No, we must seek the very wisdom of God on this. We must seek God's knowledge on this. We must ask for for enlightenment from the Holy Spirit Himself on these things so that we may know and we may understand. And so while we should say most carefully what we do believe, at the same time we should not shrink back from declaring boldly What we do not believe. If for no other reason, for the sake of those who like to attach themselves to Christianity and yet believe error and heresy about who Jesus Christ is. So stick with me here, because I want to be clear. If I say something that comes across confusing right now or piques your interest, I'll be at the back afterwards. Come find me, we can talk about it more, or I can point you in the direction of some good resources. So number one, we must never forget that though our Lord was God and man at the same time, His Godness, His divine nature, and His human nature, His manness, were never mixed or confused. One nature did not swallow up the other. He did not suddenly become more man or more God at any one point. He held them in complete unison together all at once. Much how we've looked at and studying the attributes of God, we have emphasized over and over the simplicity of God, that God is at one time love and justice and mercy and patience and faithfulness and His omniscience and omnipresence, that He holds all of them in tension at one time. He is fully those things. The same could be said of Jesus Christ, that He is fully God and fully man all at once. And so the two natures of Jesus remained perfect and distinct. The Godness of Christ was never for a moment laid aside, although it was veiled. The manhood of Christ during His lifetime was never for a moment different than our own, though because of His fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, He was greatly dignified. He wasn't the greatest man. Though perfect God Christ has always been perfect man from the first moment of his conception and incarnation. This means that he who has gone into heaven is sitting at the father's right hand to intercede for sinners as a man as well as God. Though perfect man Christ never ceased to be perfect God. And so We believe that He that suffered on the cross, who was made sin for us, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, was God manifest in the flesh. The blood with which the church was purchased is called in Acts 20.28 the blood of God Himself. Though He became flesh in the fullest sense when He was born of the Virgin Mary, He never at any period ceased to be the eternal Word. And so we hold firmly to these truths and to say that at any instance of his earthly ministry he was not fully and entirely God is nothing less than heresy. It is to step outside of Christianity. Now some of you may hear that and think that is high theology. That is brain-busting theology. There is no way that we could ever comprehend or understanding what is going on here. And to you, I would say, go back 100 or 200 years and read some of the children's catechisms and the questions that they were asked to learn and memorize. Some of you may hear that and say, well, Pastor, now we're wading into the weeds. We're getting into matters deeper than we ought to on a Sunday morning. But friends, especially parents, these are the truths that we ought to be laboring to teach our five-year-olds our six-year-olds our seven-year-olds these are the truths that we ought to be discussing with our adolescents. these are the truths that we must return to in seasons of plenty and seasons of sorrow these are the truths that we must renew and relearn as we become senior adults the word made flesh must be the one that we seek to understand more and more and more as each day passes. Because each day that passes is a day closer to standing face to face with Him. Why? Why must we labor to understand such deep things? Why should we labor to disciple others in learning such deep things? Because while these truths may seem heady and pointless and wearisome and and hair-splitting to some of you, it is precisely the neglect of such things that ruins many souls. So let me just give you two points of application here in this first point. First, the reality that, that this man, Jesus Christ, is both the eternal divine Word and the flesh and bone of Jesus of Nazareth, Makes him of infinite value and worth. Being fully God and fully man qualifies him. It makes him worthy to be the very mediator that we, as broken and stubborn and wretched sinners, truly need. Friends, do you realize this? Christian, do you realize this? That as Christians, our mediator is one who can sympathize with us because He is very man. And yet, at the same time, He is the one who can go to the Father for us on equal playing field, on an equal term, because He is very God. Second, though, it makes all that He does and his dwelling here on earth of infinite value and worth. So, not just to this person, that who he is is of infinite value and worth, but what he does. So, consider because he is fully God and fully man, it gives infinite value to his righteousness that is now given to believers. Here's your big word for the day this is what we call imputed righteousness. That it's given to us, that is put upon us, that is laid over us. It is the righteousness of the one who is God and man, the righteousness that Jesus Himself achieved in his perfect life that has endless value and endless worth and is now handed, literally handed to each and every believer. So that if you are a Christian, if you have believed in the name of Jesus Christ, when the Father looks at you, He sees not a righteousness that you have earned or that you have deserved or that you have merited, but that which the Word achieved in becoming flesh. Do you see that? That the Son... The Word had to become flesh to achieve what you could not so that He could give it to you so that you could be what you could never be on your own. What's more is that in this Word becoming flesh it gives infinite value to the atoning blood which He said shed for sinners on the cross. When Jesus dies It is the blood of one who was God as well as man. It's that same union that gives infinite value to His resurrection. When He rose again as the head of the church, He rose not as a mere man, but as God. Friends, how we ought to treasure these truths. How we ought to let them sink deeply into our hearts in our minds. If you could but give your life to one thought, may it be that Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh, and you will never come to the end of thinking. You will never come to the end of the glories of Christ. And all those of you who are here today who are not believers in Jesus Christ, how we, as a church, long for you to know these things. Jesus is truly the God-man. Fully God as the divine word and fully man. Taking on the very flesh of Adam. Not me, Adam in the Bible. Genesis 1 through 3, that Adam. Jesus is truly the second and better Adam. The second Adam is far greater than the first Adam. Adam. The first Adam, as we read in Genesis 1 through 3, was only a man, so he fell. But Jesus, who is the second and better Adam, was God as well as man, so he completely conquers. He is the serpent-stomping king that the first Adam could never be. Did the Word become flesh? Then he is the one who can be touched with the feeling of his people's infirmities. Because he suffered himself and was tempted. He is almighty because he is God. And yet he can sympathize with us because he is man. Did the word become flesh? Then he can supply us with a perfect pattern and example for our daily lives. Had he walked among us as an angel or as a spirit? We could never have copied him. We could have never walked in obedience. We could have never obeyed God as we see him obey God. As John will go on to say in his first letter in 1 John 2 6, walk even as he walked. He is a perfect pattern because he is God, but he's also a pattern exactly suited for our needs because he is a man. And so as we celebrate, Thanksgiving this past week, is there anything else that should give us such deep gratitude and thankfulness? And oh, that our Advent season would be marked not by sentimentality or some folk religion that's hopped up on candy canes and Burl lives, but on knowing what the eternal Word did in taking on the flesh of a child born in the womb of Mary. What a sweet life and help comes to all who know Christ by faith and believe on Him. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know the sweet fellowship of Jesus Christ, if you don't know what it means to be a follower of this one who was divine and yet took on flesh, please find me or one of the other pastors afterward. We would love to talk with you more about it. Because here is where true life is found. We want you to know that life. We are praying that God would draw you to that life even now in the hearing of my words. So let's move on then to what happens next in verse 14. As we look at the second thing of Jesus displaying glory. Much more can certainly be said, and we will say more in the coming weeks, Lord willing, about who exactly Jesus is in the Word that becomes flesh. But John does not over linger here. Instead he moves on in verse 14 to tell us what takes place when this eternal Word takes on flesh. He tells us what actually happens. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Now there's no doubt that this verse holds a lot of truth and goodness for us. And we ought to make it ours. We ought to own this verse and take it up And be willing to defend it to the death. But as we do, we should not dislocate verse 14 from the book and the chapter in which it is found. And that's what John is revealing to us here in this place. On the one hand, we have the first half of this verse, as we've just seen, he lays out how the eternal stepped into the temporal, how the infinite stepped into the finite. But John also wants to show us, as he will, that Jesus grew up into manhood. He displayed the very glory of God's presence in a time and place. So when it says here that we have seen his glory, W-E, we, see it there? We have seen his glory. Who is it that John is specifically talking about? John doesn't say that I have seen his glory. He says we, meaning myself and, and others. So who are the others? Who is he talking of? You know, this. he uses the same language in his first letter in First John 1. Listen to what he says there. Let me read the first four verses of First John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest, To us, that we have seen and heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Who's the we? Who's he talking about? Does John have like a writing team with him there? And he's like, all right, what do you think? All right, what do you... No, the only writing team with John is the Holy Spirit... So what does John mean when he says we have seen His glory? Well, it seems, if you think about it simply, that he's talking about the apostles. He's talking about those who walked with Jesus most closely. He's speaking of those early followers of the Word made flesh. He's saying that Jesus didn't just come into the world veiled and hidden and all of a sudden, boom, He's being killed and rising from the dead. No, that's not how Jesus operated No, he he grew up into a man, and then that man stepped into a ministry and did that ministry alongside a band of brothers, and they saw it. They witnessed it. They were a part of it. He's saying that, that, that the long road to the cross that was full of God's glory was not walked alone, but that Jesus walked with this group of men. And there were women there too who witnessed all that Jesus did And this really gets at the word that I've held off on diving into much until now. And it's the word dwelt. See it there? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt. This word literally means to take up residence, to live among, to pitch a tent among. To dwell is to be somewhere really and truly. And this is exactly what John intends to hold out for us. That the word dwelt among us. Literally translated means tabernacled among us or he pitched a tent among us. So this truth takes us back to how God initially displayed his glory to his people in the Old Testament. See, this idea of displaying glory is not some new concept that Jesus just pops on the scene with. It's something God has always been meaning to do. It's always something that he has been aiming to do. It's it's always his his work in creation to display his glory. We studied this earlier in the year in thinking about the Old Testament. That is where God moved in and lived with his people. That the tent of meeting, which it is called, was this place where, where God's dwelling was. And this is why it is called the tent of meeting. It is how God revealed his glory to mankind. His perfect plan that was spoiled by the sins of the people was that He would dwell among them and His glory would go out and not just stop with Israel but would go to the nations calling them to come to Him. This is why it's called the Tent of Meeting. And so the book of Exodus ends, which we had read for us earlier. Then the cloud covered the Tent of Meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But now as we come to John's gospel, as we come to this verse about the word taking on flesh and tabernacling among us, displaying the glory of God once more, we find that that Old Testament tabernacle has no true meaning apart from Jesus Christ. That apart from the Word becoming flesh, the tabernacle does not find its true and full meaning. The tabernacle, as we come to find, its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point people forward to the true tabernacle who was to come, the Son of God. And so, as Paul tells us in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, in Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's tabernacle language. And so, if we ask the question, how did John and the other apostles see the glory of Christ? A good place to start is by considering how Jesus, this Word made flesh, is the true dwelling place of of God among man. Jesus is the true tabernacle. So the tabernacle was for use in the wilderness. Matthew 4.1 tells us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. The tabernacle was outwardly humble and it was unattractive. And so Isaiah 53.2 tells us he who was state who had stately form, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And yet we find that the tabernacle was where God met with men. And so John 14:6 will tell us: I, Jesus says, am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so the tabernacle was the very center of Israel's camp, a gathering place for God's people. And so Jesus says in John 12, 32, And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. We find in the tabernacle the place where the sacrifices for the sins of God's people were made. And so we read in Hebrews ten twelve, But he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. We find that the tabernacle was the place where the, the priestly family was fed. There was food held there for the priest. And so we read in John six thirty five, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And finally we see the tabernacle was the very place of worship. And so we cry along with Thomas, my Lord, my God. We do not understand the teaching of the Old Testament in all of its fullness unless we read it through Jesus Christ, through His incarnation, His life, and His death, and His resurrection. The tabernacle has no final and full meaning apart from Jesus. Or to say it another way, we do not know the glory of God among us unless we have beheld the very face of Jesus Christ. See, thousands of years before Jesus, God purposed that there would be this tent so that in that day, Jesus may come and be that tent who dwelt among His people but he also did it as a shadow of the day where he would come again. And friends, the good news is that when he comes again, he won't come as an unattractive tent in the wilderness. He will come as the glorious temple itself. And so... Moses there in the wilderness sought to look upon the glory of God, and he was warned by God himself not to look. But we have the privilege of looking upon the face of the Word of God, upon Jesus by faith. And yet one day by sight we will see the face of Jesus, not by faith, but actually. Who will fully reveal himself fully manifested in glory, and it will shine upon us. As Peter writes, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So what is glory anyway? In Hebrew, the word glory means weight, heaviness. So God's glory is His weightiness, His heaviness. It is His holiness and goodness shown and and made known. And that's exactly what we get in Jesus Christ, isn't it? We get the full weight of God, the full display of God's glory. We don't need another tabernacle. We don't need to make some pilgrimage or set up some huge building. We don't need some secret service to find God's presence or God's glory. We don't need some dust to sprinkle down from heaven so that we know we're in God's presence. And we have it all in Jesus Christ. And it's all that we need. So Pastor Skip Ryan once made the analogy that many Christians today are into what we may call Christian light. Like light beer. Give me a little Jesus just enough to make me happy. But this is not the picture that we have in John 1, is it? And may it never be the ministry of this church to serve such a meager drink. There is no Jesus light here. There is no Jesus with zero calories. No, this is glory. This Christ has weight. He is full and He is sufficient. So what does that mean for us then? It means that Christ must be our diet. That He must be the center. Just as the tabernacle became the very centerpiece of the camp of Israel, so Jesus Christ, the true tabernacle, the true displayer of the glory of God, must be the very center of our lives. Yes, John and his friends beheld the glory of Christ then in a very specific and particular way. But the question is, can you behold His glory now? Is it possible for us to behold the glory of Christ? Do we have to be like John and Peter and Bartholomew and the other guys? To behold the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, friends, while well, they got to do so in a special way, no doubt. Paul seems to think that we can. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, now from one degree of glory to another, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And he says earlier back in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what is held out for us in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, even dimly in these days? The Bible tells us that beholding the glory of Christ transforms us. It changes us into the same image of Jesus Christ. And so friends, this is the key to transformation. This is the key to change. Jesus Himself, the Word made flesh, is the very key to godliness. This is what we heard read earlier in the assurance of pardon. And this is the mystery of godliness. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul doesn't go on to say, this is the mystery of godliness. You do A, B, C, and D, and that's how you get godliness. No, he says the mystery of godliness is that Jesus was made manifest in the flesh. How does that work? By beholding Him, by seeing Him, by knowing Him and looking unto Christ. We are transformed. Children, this is how you grow up into maturity. Adults, here is the answer for all of your woes and troubles that God thunders into the lives of His people in flesh and bone and says that when we behold in Jesus the glory of God full of grace and truth, we will be changed. No self-help book. No some crackpot psychologist. No pills in your medicine cabinet. We are thankful for God's grace in those things. And I said it a few weeks ago. We are thankful for God's grace, His common grace in medicine and doctors. But here is the key to true transformation. Here is the key. Here is the true light brings us to the final thing I want us to think about this morning and that is how Jesus reveals the Father. Brings us to the final couple of phrases there in the verse. Now I've purposefully, purposefully not devoted a lot of time here this morning to these last two phrases because there are some bigger truths here that I want to dive more deeply into as we begin working our way through the book. specifically as it relates to this idea of Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, which we'll consider more in John 3.16. see this idea of Jesus, the Son's relationship with the Father. And this is really a theme that we'll actually see run throughout the entire book of how Jesus relates to the Father. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about that this morning. But before we do conclude, let's at least look at that final piece of John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory and hear these two phrases. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As we have considered how the Word became flesh and how His coming displayed glory to the watching world as the living, breathing tabernacle among us, we are left with one central question that John now takes up to answer. What kind of glory does Jesus reveal? What kind? What is this glory that Jesus reveals? How is the glory that Jesus displays particular to Him? How is the glory of the Word becoming flesh different from the glory of God displayed in other ways? Like the tabernacle of God displayed a certain glory. Or God speaking with His people of old through prophets and visions and dreams displayed His glory. We even think about the exodus from Egypt and His signs and His wonders. They displayed His glory. Even in nature itself, we're told reveals the glory of God. But John tells us now that there is a particular glory on display in the coming of Jesus Christ. To put it plainly, what we celebrate during the Christmas season is God's special glory being revealed to us in Jesus. But what is this glory john says this is a glory that can only come from a son who is sent by the father it is a glory that can only come from the father represented by the son so what kind of glory is this my well, friend it is the glory of redemption it is the glory of the redemption story it is the glory of salvation this is not a general glory. So this is a special revealed glory in Jesus stepping out of the eternal heavens and into flesh and blown, walking on the dirt among us. It is the glory displayed in the Son who was sent by the Father to accomplish the work that only the Word made flesh could do in living and in dying and thereby restoring a right relationship between God and His people. This is the particular glory of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is particularly glorious because He and He alone perfectly reveals the Father's will and the very nature of God to us. You, you have to realize this, right? So you have to step back and think, okay, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus actually doing? Why is this so earth-shattering? That some of us, if we've grown up in church, need to be shaken a little bit so the cobwebs could be loosened and we could see what we're actually saying when Jesus is here. That without the Word becoming flesh, without Jesus Christ, we would not have anything truly about God. We would not know anything truly about Him. That He would be eternally invisible to us. We would never have seen God at any time. And when I say anytime, I mean either in this life or in the next. But in Jesus' coming, the redemption of the Father, accomplished through the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit, is achieved and revealed to us. And so, this is why the glory of Jesus Christ, as John closes here, is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. What is grace? Is it a sprinkling of fairy dust and a warm and happy feeling? No. Grace is the powerful gift of God to lift you out of the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of light. Grace is God's magnificent power erupting in your heart and soul by His own work so that you move from death to life so that you move from darkness to light, so that you move from hell to heaven. Grace is God's glory embodied in a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And what is truth? Well, 25 times in the Gospel of John, we read about truth. So this is one we should get. Does it mean factual truth? Yes. Does it mean objective truth? Yes. But it means so much more than that. It also means truth that is embodied and enfleshed, living and breathing truth. It means truth that is the very nature of an individual. And this individual, the one that we find here, is Jesus Christ. The one whose glory is displayed by grace and by the truth. The grace and truth that He displays in His coming and His living and His dying and rising again. In Jesus we find the Son sent by the Father to deliver the gracious gift of salvation and the wise and everlasting truth of who He is. This is the response then that the disciples in John 6 when many leave over Jesus' hard teaching say. They say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, what does God look like? How will we know Him when we see Him? We know the face of God in the glory of Jesus Christ. We see God by beholding the mystery of the Word made flesh. Friends, this is the only way to salvation, this is the only way to holiness. This is the only way to eternal life. This is the only way that we will ever see the kingdom of God pour forth among us in our own days. Do you want to know God? Do you want to spend eternity in His presence? Then hear the call of John 1.14. Come and see the Word made flesh. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ. John Owen once wrote, By beholding the glory of Christ, we shall be fit and ready for heaven. And so, my question for you as we close today is how are you being outfitted to see Jesus face to face someday? How are you equipping your children to stand before the face of Christ? Are your neighbors and co workers ready? What of those that have neither known the name nor heard of His grace and truth around the world? Friends, John 1.14 displays for us the glory of the Word made flesh. And it is for us to behold. And it is for us to proclaim. So that we and all of those who hear may have life eternal. This is the call that still stands today. Hear it. I plead with you and see in Jesus the Word becoming flesh, displaying His glory and revealing the very face of God. And by seeing, believe. And by believing, be made fit and ready for the glories of everlasting life. Let me pray. Oh God, that we may see and know Your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And may we be moved to repentance and faith. Not just for those who are here who do not know You, but for those who have known You long and yet may be dry and weary. Oh God, may we all see the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ and be drawn to worshiping Him, not just with the words of our lips, but the very thoughts and meditations of our hearts and minds. May we give ourselves wholly to His service in our families, in our workplaces. May we lift Him up to those who do not know, both near and far so that we may one day join with the church, saints of old, and those who have yet to come, and worship our head, who is forever the Word made flesh. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.